We have just started a new sermon series last Sunday on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. And in my intro uh, last week, I shared a few points of background. The city of Ephesus uh, was highly strategic. You can see it on the map on the uh, western uh, coast of what is now uh, the nation of Turkey. It was a highly strategic location uh, found at the crossroads of routes between Asia and Europe, uh, an incredibly influential port city, probably the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at the time. Ephesus had a cosmopolitan blend of different peoples and nationalities and religions and races, and so it was a challenging place in which to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus alone is Lord, not Caesar Augustus, not the goddess Artemis, also known as Diana. The Bible alone is truth against every other worldview. But in the midst of opposition, there was great gospel opportunity, we said. The church in Ephesus was planted uh, on Paul's third missionary journey. We can find that in Acts chapters 18, 19, and 20, probably in the mid-50s A.D. And Paul spent more time ministering in Ephesus than he did in any other location during his uh, entire ministry career. Years later, while he sat in a Roman prison, sitting on death row, he penned this letter to the Ephesians in uh, intending for it to be circulated also among the believers in the surrounding region because Acts chapter, um, 1 Corinthians tells us that uh, all the Jews and Greeks from the surrounding areas heard the gospel through Paul's preaching. This morning, I'll I'll again only read the first two verses. Part of the reason is my tendency to rush headlong into most things without uh, taking my time. Um, But Ephesians, and especially chapter 1, is so incredibly rich. It's such a gospel treasure that we, I need to exercise just a little bit of patience, which looks like two sermons on the first two verses of Ephesians, and then we're going to get going. Uh, as we look more deeply into chapter 1. So consider this background part 2 on Sunday number 2. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this is a treasure by your Holy Spirit in and among us. Give us power, give us wisdom, give us discerning eyes of the heart to see your truth, to see you, and to worship as a result and to be changed individually and as a church community. Use this letter, Lord. Speak again freshly to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk this morning about uh, three words that we find in the first two verses, very simply, saints, grace, and peace. First, saints. Paul addresses his letter to God's holy people. Other translations use the phrase to the saints in Ephesus. Both are accurate translations, but I, uh, I think we could understand why some avoid that second translation, because when you hear the word saint, what do you think of? 
Some of you think of the elite few Catholics who have been canonized over the centuries to whom, uh, at least the Roman Catholic Church believes, is due reverence to whom it's appropriate to pray. A lot of us think of that when we hear the word saint. Others of us um, think of a person or at least an ideal of a person who's morally pure, who follows all the rules, who is holy. But Paul here is talking to and about every single believer in the church at Ephesus, not just an elite few, not just a select who have attained to some level of religiosity. The word behind saint or holy one is less about sanctity and more about separation. It's less about purity and it's more about a word we used last week, position. Let me explain a little bit more. When we hear the word position, again, we talked about that a lot last Sunday. When we hear the word position, maybe you think of class rank in high school, your position amongst your peers, or or the idea of a percentile when you get the results of standardized tests back, right? You're in the 84th percentile, meaning you're better than 84% of the kids at your grade level, position. Or maybe you think of the order of race cars at the Indianapolis 500, the order set by which drivers ran the fastest qualifying laps, right? The fastest get up in the front. Your position at work was earned by your performance over the years, at least for many of you. It's merit-based. Position, depending on the context, so often depends on how well you have done at school, at work, on the ball field, position. That's not at all what position means in God's eyes, though. It's very different. The idea of being set apart or separated from or declared holy, it has its origin in the Old Testament when God chose His people and set them apart from all the other nations. Why did He choose them? Because they were the best at following His law? Not at all. Far from it. In fact, when he revealed his law to his people, when he gave them wise living uh, expectations, so very often the Old Testament records, they rejected his wisdom. They went a different way. This is what Moses says to the people of Israel instead as they're preparing to enter the promised land. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses says to the Israelites, you were the puniest. You were the weakest of all nations. You were a nobody. And so we would naturally ask, how do they become a somebody? And Moses answers, the Lord loved you. That's how. The Lord set his affection on you. The Lord determined to uh, make you his own, to call you to himself, to separate you from all other nations. And over the next month or so, we'll see Paul unfold that idea and call it gospel grace as we see the initiative of God in salvation. No one wants to be known as a holy one, right? It it has this uh, suggestion of somebody who acts 
holier than thou, who, who's sanctimonious, same root word as holy one or saint. Somebody who makes a show of being morally superior to other people. No one wants to be the holy one in Sunday school or at church, let alone at work. But Paul turns a cringeworthy label into a statement, a core statement about identity. That's what position is all about. Position does not mean that the follower of Christ has figured it out and is good enough or is, or is better than others at following law, at being holy in their living. Position means that God himself declares that the follower of Christ belongs in his family, has every right, has every expectation of sitting at his table and dining with him. So the term saints or holy ones describes what we've called position. This is who you are in Christ. God has declared you to be set apart. He's declared you to be holy, different. And so you shouldn't want to be uh, someone who blends in and is like everyone else. And yes, if you don't blend in, if you're set apart, if you're different, holy, to use the biblical word, chances are you will be ridiculed or ignored or even persecuted at some point. But this was the path of the Savior, and if living like everyone else leads to death, why would we want to blend in? To be declared holy is a privilege. It is to receive this declaration of God about who we are, and now we're called to act like it, to live in light of that identity. What do we know about these saints? We're told they are in Ephesus. Uh, They have a unique story. They're rooted in a particular culture at a given point in time, and so with uh, other pieces of history, not just church and biblical history, we know what it means to be in Ephesus in the year 55 AD, for example. And yet, the more important truth to know about these people is that they're in Christ, that they're united to Him by faith. What we tend to do is to reverse the priority of those parts of identity. We elevate in Ephesus and devalue in Christ. Too many of us define ourselves by, I live in Teaneck, or I live in Ridgewood. I work at this company. I am in this profession. Donald was getting at this in his uh, preparation uh, uh, in, in worship, uh, for worship in, in, in reading through the reflection quotes and, and sharing a bit. We tend to identify ourselves as, I play this sport or this instrument. This is what I do in life. And of course, those are meaningful parts of who you are. Those communicate something to someone who wants to get to know you, to to understand the particulars of your story. But none of those elements of who we are and what we do gets at the root of identity. None of them is foundational. None of them defines the central plot line of the story of your life. So we might put it this way, earthly geography in Ephesus, in Teaneck, needs to be overshadowed by spiritual geography in Christ. This is who I am. So if someone says, tell me about yourself, and in your answer, if no part of your answer involves your identity as a holy one, as someone who is in Christ, then either you don't know your core identity or You're embarrassed that God has set you apart from death and has given you life. 
The first one needs growth. It needs correction. It needs information. It needs the revelation of God. It needs community of faith to help you learn about your core identity. The second one needs to be repented of because it's sin. And quite frankly, it makes no sense, does it? When we think about any embarrassment or shame that God has called us to himself, given us incredible privilege and identity and status and the riches that Jesus himself has earned and life, why in the world would we be embarrassed by any of that? Because it's not of ourselves, of course. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And if you're not a follower of Christ you'd probably say that your identity is based on something else. You don't need Jesus to give you something. You, you've established it on your own. You, you have your own sense of position in life. But if it's based on what you've accomplished, what happens when someone does better? What happens when uh, someone's faster, prettier, smarter, more clever, cheaper to your company? to employ, and when you lose your job or when financial disaster strikes or when a relationship that provides you a sense of identity becomes broken and dysfunctional and perhaps even ceases, whether through divorce or death, then what happens to your sense of position? Paul here in Ephesians and throughout the rest of the New Testament points you to God's offer of a position that is a gift. It can't be deserved, and therefore it can't be undeserved. It can't be lost because you screw up. That gift includes privilege and a sense of family belonging in God's family for eternity, and it's all accessed by faith in Jesus Christ. By the, word, uh, by the way, the word saint Every single instance, except for one in the New Testament, is in the plural. The, the authors of Scripture are always talking about the saints with an S, and the only exception is in Philippians chapter 4 when Paul says, greet every saint, and the idea there is the same, even though the grammar may be different. Following Christ, being one of God's holy people, is a family community reality. That's one of the reasons why when we recite the Apostles' Creed on Lord's Supper Sunday, first Sunday of every month, we say that we believe in the communion of saints. It's community. Being in Christ means that every Christian gets grafted into, bonded together in this spiritual family. There's no individuality. If that's saints, the second word we're focused on this morning is grace. First thing Paul shares after his address to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, the first thing he says is this double greeting, grace and peace to you. What's interesting is that at the beginning of his letters, Paul says grace to you, and at the end of his letters, he says grace be with you. Every single one of his 13 letters follows that same exact pattern, grace to you at the beginning, and then grace with you at the end. Why? Pastor and author John Piper offers this explanation. At the beginning of his letters, Paul has in mind that the letter itself is a channel of God's grace to the readers. That grace is now active and is about to flow from God through my inspired writing to you as you read. But at the end of his letters, Paul shares a blessing. Grace be with you, with you as you put the letter away and go home, go to work, muster courage to speak up for Christ over lunch. I send out a lot of emails to you guys, 
And if you've gotten an email from me, I, my digital sign-off for years has been grace to you. If you ask me, what does that mean? I, I would say, trust me, I didn't think of any of this when I chose to sign off that way. And now I would say, after reading Piper, what he said. <laughs> it's exact. I'll take that, what he said. And maybe I should change it to grace will be with you as a sign-off, as a, as a farewell, as a, as a wish of God's blessing upon you as we part, in a sense. Grace, as an initial greeting, is no casual word for Paul to throw around. Here's another author and scholar, James Dunn, who says this in his book, The Theology of Paul the Apostle. It is important to grasp that for Paul, behind the whole salvation process, always lay the initiative of God. No other word expresses his theology so clearly on this point as grace. In the original Greek, the writing of the New Testament, charis. No other word. Grace is every movement of God towards his people. Grace is God revealing the fullness of who he is to his creation, especially in the revelation and in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. Grace is God's attitude of compassion and mercy. Grace is God's promise to finish what he started. Grace is God providing Holy Spirit power to sustain and nourish the follower of Jesus. Grace is past and grace is ongoing. Past, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And grace is ongoing. Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, three times pleads for God to take it away, and God's answer to him is this, my grace is sufficient for you, not only now, but in the future, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so, grace to you is Paul saying to the Ephesians, and grace to you is Paul saying to Grace Redeemer Church, listen up. I'm about, to, I'm about to point you to everything that your heart craves, everything that you were satisfied, created to be satisfied with, everything that our perfect Father in heaven desires for his children to experience and enjoy now and forever. These are words of life, Paul would say. Grace is coming. Words of life in a world filled with decay and death. The second part of his greeting is peace, lastly. Peace, it suggests everything from the uh, stoned-out hippie to wishful thinking about the Middle East. Peace, parents of toddlers just want a little bit of peace and quiet. They want peace to wake up and find that it's 7 (laughs) a.m. and they woke up on their own. Uh, Lots of people think peace comes from financial security. We all want to get a piece of the rock, to quote that one of the more famous commercial jingles uh, as I was growing up, Prudential. Everyone wants peace, but how do you find it? Or how do you achieve it? Uh, listen to Sam Storms. I'm, I'm uh, using one of his devotionals on the book of Colossians right now. He explains what Paul means when he wishes peace to the Ephesian church. He says this, This is the kind of peace that, rather than being dependent on material and physical comfort, actually frees you from bondage to physical comforts and liberates you from dependence on whatever money can buy. Now, Sam is is using intentionally the biblical language of slavery to sin when he says bondage. 
And he's saying and using that idea, using that phrase, that real peace always involves freedom. It's about freedom. And in particular, he's talking about freedom from dependence on the things of this world. You have plenty of examples of that kind of lack of peace. Um, I was at lunch with somebody on Friday, and an example of a lack of peace came up. Here here are a few of my own. Our, Our freezer right now uh, is not defrosting, and so all the water that comes out from the uh, dehumidifying pools at the bottom of the freezer and eventually drips out, but it creates a layer of ice, and every week we've got to pound it out. I, I dread the idea of calling the service guy and having to pay whatever he says it's going to cost to fix it. We have a, a growing mold stain on the drywall right above our kitchen table. Last year, we had a toilet dripping, had to open up the ceiling. The toilet was repaired, or so I thought, and 10 months later, it's dripping again. I dread the thought of calling the plumber and having it be an even bigger problem than it was originally thought and costs a few hundred dollars. You buy something you're excited about, and sooner than later it becomes something new, additional, that needs fixing, that needs worrying about, that breaks any sense of peace that you may have had. The stuff of life for which we're grateful It can so easily enslave and stress and burden and steal a sense of what we think is real peace. But the peace that Paul wishes to the Ephesian church isn't a shallow peace that just hopes everything works out okay, that nothing breaks, that the car keeps running, even though it's 120,000 miles or 150, because that so-called peace will, we all know it, It will disappear when the next thing breaks and when the next bill shows up in the mail. Grace was a twist on the typical Greek greeting, karen, which was just a hello, literally rejoice, but it became charis. And peace was a typical Jewish greeting rooted in the Old Testament word shalom. But when a person shared that Hebrew greeting of shalom, they were Uh, wishing upon the the other person a lot more than just peace because shalom carries with it a sense of life as it's supposed to be, a sense of contentment, a sense of satisfaction, a sense of, yes, this is what God intended when he created the world and it was free from sin, a state of rest. So Paul wishes peace because uh, something fundamental is broken in us, not in our kitchens not in our driveways. We are broken, and we are enslaved to sin, and we need a peace that centrally involves freedom from that kind of spiritual bondage in order to have a restored relationship with the Creator. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we believe we're united to Christ, our position is in Christ, spiritual geography says everything about who I am now, this is my identity, therefore, we have peace. We don't go looking for it, we don't try to generate it. 
we don't um, create a facade and an illusion that we are at peace even when we have inner turmoil. No, Paul says, if you've been justified by faith, if you are in Christ, if you are positionally in God's family, then you have peace. Why? Because the central plot line of your story, the core of your identity has transformed from slave to sin, dead in transgressions, to use the word of encouragement, into alive with Christ, free, son, daughter of the living God. Peace is a gift from God. It is not something to be wished for. It's received on the basis of grace that is granted to those whom God declares to be His holy people. People who who could never be good enough to deserve that label of holy. But God declares us holy, set apart, objects of grace, recipients of peace. And the Father says, this is who you are. This is who you are. Exult in it. And for the next several months, we have the privilege of looking through the rest of this letter as Paul unfolds verse by verse what he will call in the very next verse, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's pray that we would understand what that means and grasp it with all our faith. Thank you, Lord, that you would take that kind of initiative with sinners like us, that you would send your Son grace, that you would provide us with your Holy Spirit grace, that you would supply our every need, grace, now and until Jesus comes back. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.